Ezekiel chapter 40 is where we are. So if you'd grab your Bible and turn there, Ezekiel 40. We're in the home stretch here of the book of Ezekiel, but I gotta say these last chapters are somewhat considered tedious. You don't see a lot of churches go through this and there's a reason because they, um, they don't see it as important, frankly. Have you ever wondered why it is that churches feel like it's okay to just skip certain scriptures? Um, there's an attitude out there that's kind of, I'm concerned about that says, you know, certain Bible passages, well, that's, you know, who wants to hear about the dimensions of a temple that, well, in fact, the reason I think a lot of people don't go over this is because what they think this temple is or is not. That's the problem. You see, depending on your eschatological view, that's a fancy word for end times view, you know, your, your, what you think is gonna happen. A lot of the people that have that pre, you know, pre-millennial, pre-trib, you know, uh, kind of view like we do, you, you kind of have to read the whole Bible and you realize everything's important. There's other views out there like the amillennial view or the preterist view that kind of says, ah, oh, everything's just figurative or it's already happened, so it doesn't really matter. That's kind of the, the attitude that happens. So you, you won't see a, a, you know, an amillennialist church go through Ezekiel's uh, section here on the, the, the millennial temple um, because some people say it's not even something that's gonna be real. It's just all figurative. It's some you know, thing that doesn't mean anything to us today, so forget it. But I believe the Bible, every verse, every chapter, every book is important for us and that's why we don't skip anything. Paul said to the Ephesus elders there in Acts chapter 20, he says, I have not shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. The idea is every word that God teaches in his holy word. And that's why we go through these, these more difficult passages. If you wanna call them that, I, I suppose you could call them difficult. But I also think they're appropriate and important for us today. So we'll take a look at this, Ezekiel chapter 40. In fact, if you're jotting down notes, you can kind of note that basically chapters 40 through 43 gives us the description of the temple. And uh, chapters 44, uh, and uh, through 46 is the worship in the temple. And 47 through 48 is the land um, around the temple, okay? So the first section here that we're gonna look at tonight, seeing how far we get tonight, is the description of the temple. Now, by the way, there, there's a few things that we need to maybe nail down. There's a lot of confusion as it relates to how many temples there are in the Bible. Uh, does anyone even take a guess? How many temples are there listed either past, present, or future in the Bible? Temples, anybody? Somebody said four, five? Anybody have six? <laughs> Did I take a six? Yeah, no, six. Uh, I don't know how to do it. Where's Dan? Is Dan here? I should get the uh, auctioneer guy here up here. Yeah, okay, somebody six. Some people, in fact, you might even say some of the more scholarly people say there's only two temple periods or two temples, um, depending on who you're talking to. Um, I'm gonna give you nine. <laughs> but I'm gonna stretch it. I'll, I'll admit it, I'm gonna stretch some, but, but maybe it's not a stretch. But uh, I, I think these are all temples the Bible does talk about. And you can sort out which ones you wanna delineate as real temples or temples that we can talk about. But when it comes to the academic uh, people, they'll usually talk about the first temple period and the second temple period, uh, one and two. And we'll kind of point those out. But the first temple um, is not really a temple, but I'm gonna include it in my list. So number one is the tabernacle itself, right? There was the tabernacle and it wasn't a temple really, but it was 
doing the exact same thing a temple does. The, the tabernacle is where God's glory dwelt with the Ark of the Covenant, table of showbread, the candlesticks, the altar of incense, the same, the altar, the, the laver, all the elements of the temple were there. It's just, it was portable. It was a, it was a tent uh, there. And the tabernacle was around 1500 BC uh, when, um, you know, or thereabouts when uh, Moses and the gang built the tabernacle on their wilderness wandering. So temple number one, we'll just call that the tabernacle, okay? Number two, we'll call Solomon's temple. Now of the scholarly people, this is the first temple. Uh, They would say Solomon's temple. Now, the thing is, remember David wanted to build this temple, but because he was a man of war and had blood on his hands, you recall that he wasn't allowed to build this temple, but he, but he procured all the uh, building materials and stocked up all the gold and silver and lumber and rebar and concrete or whatever. They got all that stuff was stacked up, ready to roll so that when Solomon came along, all he had to do is put it together and build it. And that was about 1000 BC when uh, David wanted to build the temple, but uh, eventually his son Solomon would build the temple. And this, this temple, do you guys remember, when was the temple of Solomon wiped out? Built and destroyed. 586 BC, right, the Babylonians. This is the Ezekiel time. This happened right when Ezekiel is writing this about the millennial temple that we're about to read about here. Um, Ezekiel's writing um, right after that glorious temple of Solomon uh, that had been around for hundreds and hundreds of years is now destroyed just recently in Ezekiel's time. That would be the, the um, Solomon's temple. And sometimes that's called the first temple, okay? Then you go to what we're gonna call the second temple, okay? And that's what scholars call the second temple. It was, um, you know, after the 70 years of captivity of the children of Israel, um, you know, uh, in about 516, remember the date goes backward because we're BC. So 586, the Solomon's temple was destroyed. About 516 BC, another temple was built by Zerubbabel, assisted by Haggai and Zechariah. Um, and do you remember the, the, the response of the people when they built the, the second temple? After Solomon's temple was destroyed seven years later, they built this new temple uh, in Jerusalem. Do you remember, what were the old people thinking about it? They were weeping, oh, it's not like the Solomon's temple. What were the young people saying about it? Wow, we have a temple, this is awesome. And the Lord used that temple. Uh, It's kind of an interesting thing. I I find that pattern in the church today, Uh, just depending on who you are and where you're from and what your proclivities are. There's some people in our church, oh, Brett, you you need to sing the hymns as they're weeping, as they hear the praise music today. Meanwhile, the young people are like, oh, praise the Lord, this is this just music touches my soul. And the old person's like, no, it's not like the good old days, just like the temple. Um, uh, or, or some of you, you know, uh, maybe even, uh, I've, I've found this as Athey Creek has grown and stuff. Some of you old school Athey Creekers, oh, I remember the old days when we used to just simple praise songs, Brett and his guitar, and, and now it's so complicated and all these words on the walls and stuff. And um, uh, I'm just so confused. Um, you're weeping while other people are rejoicing. Uh, people are piling in the church and uh, we love to see what the Lord's doing here. But yeah, it's hard. It is hard. That's just human nature uh, to see the things we love and then they kind of go away in time. But the Lord moves in different ways in sundry times and sundry manner, manners. Uh, so the second temple um, uh, was, was built by Zerubbabel and the gang. Um, Herod's temple is the fourth one. Now, some people don't call this a temple period or a different temple. Um, the reason why sometimes they're, they're, they combine Herod's temple 
with Zerubbabel's temple or the second temple is because some say it wasn't a new temple at all. It's a remodel. Um, it's just a simple remodel. So technicality, but here's what happened. If you recall, um, Zerubbabel's temple was built in 516 BC, the second temple. But Herod's temple, um, uh, an Idumean ruler by the name of Herod, he was wanting to sort of make good with the Jews. Uh, but the Jews always hated Herod the Great. But Herod did this anyway. He was trying to make good with the Jews, trying to win favor of the Jews. So he started right around 19 BC. He started building, or, or what I say maybe better, remodeling the, the temple of Zerubbabel, the second temple. Um, and the reason some people don't call it a remodel is because if you saw what it was after, it doesn't look anything like Zerubbabel's temple. Herod the Great's temple was pretty glorious and pretty amazing. Um, so he started it, check this out, in 19 BC, and it wasn't completed until 64 AD, uh, long after you know, Jesus came and then died on the cross and ascended into heaven. Like, uh, like all that happened, and then the temple wasn't even finished yet. When Jesus saw Herod's temple, that was the time during Christ, Jesus wasn't even seeing the real completed version of it, totally. Um, but you remember the disciples brought up, hey, Jesus, check out the temple. He's like, yeah, not one of these stones will uh, stay on, on another. 64 AD, when it was finished, when was that one destroyed? 70 AD, just like six years later, <laughs> uh, right after they'd spent all that time building it, it was destroyed by the Romans in, uh, by Titus, 70 AD. We talked about that last Sunday. Okay, so, so far, if you're traveling with me, you've got the tabernacle, might count as a temple. You got the first temple, which is Solomon's temple. You got the second temple, which was the rebuilt temple from the destruction of 586, Zerubbabel uh, and those guys. And then you got Herod's temple that went all the way uh, through the life of Christ and then destroyed uh, in AD 70. Now, some people say that's it. It's all the temples we have to talk about, but it's not. Um, number five, Jesus's body. <laughs> Jesus's body, yes. Do you remember it? Jot it down in your notes, John chapter two. Verse 19, Jesus talked about how his own body was a temple uh, to the Lord himself. God was in his temple. Uh, in fact, he said, if you destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. Remember, Jesus talked about that. So Jesus's body was compared to the temple of the Lord. That's the fifth one. So see, I'm being a little loose here with temples, uh, but technically in the Bible, Jesus said that. So I want you to be aware of that. Um, the next one, number six, is the body of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ. First um, Corinthians chapter three, Ephesians chapter two, those, those chapters teach us that uh, the church of Jesus Christ is the temple. Um, and you're not supposed to shun the body of Christ. Uh, have you ever noticed people that uh, like to uh, say, I don't really believe in organized religion. Uh, I don't like going to church where the God's people are, um, then you are doing something the Bible says not to do. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And just because you don't like organized religion, as it turns out, the Lord does. So you have a problem. Uh, you, you are saying, I don't like something that the Lord actually loves and purchased with his own blood. The, the church of Jesus Christ. I hope you gotta, you gotta remember that when you put down the church or knock the church. I, I find it interesting that people like to just take jabs at the church of Jesus Christ. And it's not hard to do. We're a very flawed bunch of people. Uh, I find it amazing that people find it amazing that churches are flawed. Uh, you know what I mean? It's like, oh wow, there's sinners in the church. Ooh, big newsflash. 
Yeah, we're all sinners, we're, but we are still the church of Jesus Christ. He's the head of the church. He's the one that we look to. Uh, it's not about the pastor and it's not about the church itself or the building. It's not about the movement that's happening, coming or going. It really is about the church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ, very important. Um, and then number seven, your own body, right? Paul says there in 1 Corinthians six nineteen, what? Don't you know that your body is a temple to the Holy Ghost? Okay, now let's get to number eight. Now, now we're back to literal temples uh, in Jerusalem. Are you, are you still with me so far? Uh, temple number eight is the tribulation temple. Uh, it's yet to be built. Um, but here's, here's what the, the cool stuff about this one. The tribulation temple is gonna be different than the other ones in that it's gonna not include the outer courtyard. We'll talk about that in a second. But the reason why is it's trodden down under the Gentiles, the Bible says, which is really interesting. If you look at the Temple Mount today, where the ancient temple of, of uh, you know, the Lord was in Jerusalem, you could build the temple itself on this open space near the Dome of the Rock Shrine that I was showing you pictures of on Sunday. Right next to it, it's a big open area. You could build it there, but there's not enough room to build the whole you know, temple and the outer courtyard. But the Bible says the tribulation temple will not include the outer courtyard. Interesting, kind of cool. But that temple will be rebuilt when? Well, the Bible tells us, and, and we've talked about the timeline of the end times, the, the, the tribulation period, that seven years of tribulation after the rapture of the church, right after that is when I believe they'll build the temple. What, Brett, you think they can build the temple in three and a half years? Of course, that's no sweat, especially in modern times, especially because of things like the Temple Institute in Jerusalem. Did you know that the Temple Institute, a bunch of Jews who have said, we wanna rebuild the temple, and they've been working on this for a long, long time. The Jews in Jerusalem in the temple, I, I used to take our group there, but the problem was I noticed our group would fall asleep during the presentation. It was, it was I think I was interested and everybody was like, oh man, they're all tired from walking around Jerusalem. And so they were sleeping through the presentation. So I, I don't go there as much, but it is kind of a, it is interesting. These people have gathered, the, they've put together all the furniture, the lampstands, the candlesticks, the, the table of showbread, the altar. They've got all the gold and all the stuff they need to, to build the temple again. And uh, now the, the Jews in Jerusalem, they don't know they're building the tribulation temple. They just wanna build the temple back in Jerusalem um, because the Jews don't believe in Jesus or the second coming of Jesus. Uh, they don't believe in the New Testament account of that. So they have no idea that they're building or getting ready to build the next temple, which the Bible says is gonna be that tribulation temple where, do you remember what's gonna happen three and a half years into the tribulation? What's gonna happen, anybody? Right, the abomination of desolation. And it's not a movie coming soon to a theater near you uh, because movies don't have, go to theaters anymore. Uh, but uh, <laughs> but it, it's actually that time that Daniel chapter nine, Matthew chapter 24 talks about this event where this coming world leader will defile that temple and, and exalt himself and uh, will demand to be worshiped there in that tribulation uh, temple. That's gonna happen. Um, during the tribulation period. So I believe that will be built and done by three and a half years into that seven year period called the tribulation. Now what's gonna happen to that temple? I don't know, but I think it will be destroyed perhaps during the tribulation toward the end there, maybe. Um, uh, but we'll talk about that further. So that's temple number eight. We've got one more left. 
uh, and that is Ezekiel's temple, the final temple or the millennial temple. Uh, this is the one that Ezekiel is seeing in chapters uh, 40 through 48 to the end of this book. Um, the, the, the temple that will be rebuilt during the millennial kingdom. Um, now, what's gonna be unique about this temple? Think about it. During the millennial kingdom, where will Jesus be ruling from? Jerusalem, during the millennial kingdom. So this is gonna be the first temple where the Lord himself will be a part of this temple. The Lord himself will rule from this place in Jerusalem. And so this, this is different. And I want you to note with me tonight as we kind of read some of this, some of the things that are absent from this temple that we're about to read about that is in all the other, um, you know, uh, I'll, I'll call them hardware versus software. <laughs> so, so far I gave you nine uh, sort of hardware, software, but the tabernacle, hardware. Solomon's temple, hardware. Second temple, hardware. Uh, Herod's temple, yes. Jesus's body is more of a software temple. If you, you know what I mean? Like where, where the, the Holy Ghost fills Jesus, the body of Christ and your body. Those are the ones the Lord's doing during this church age. Um, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit right now. But back to the hardware temples in the tribulation, number eight, and then also during the millennial kingdom, it's gonna be our legitimate, real, literal temple. Now, the reason that the you know, preterists or the amillennialists don't like to read these chapters is because it doesn't mean anything if you think it's all figurative. Some of them try to say, well, this is a, a description of one of the ancient temples. Um, they try to make this argument that Ezekiel's just seeing a vision of, of you know, uh, the Herod's temple, Herod the Great's. Um, the only problem with that is this temple that he's gonna describe looks nothing like Herod the Great's temple. Zip, zilch, nada, not even close uh, if you're looking at the details. Um, so I, I think that argument falls away really quickly. There's never been a temple in the history of the world built like the one Ezekiel's about to explain. Uh, and it, you know, there's similarities of course, but nothing even close. Um, and this one is, is bigger and kind of more impressive in some ways, but uh, not in other ways. And, and so um, we have to ask, why is that? And, and, um, and so when people say, oh, it's all figurative. So my question is, if it's all figurative, why do we spend so much time talking about the measurements and how long things are and where the windows go? And, you know, uh, I, I believe that, that the Lord doesn't just waste paper on the Bible and say, well, it's all figurative, it doesn't mean anything. No, this is something, this is a blueprint. We're looking at a blueprint tonight of the temple. So let's take a look. Uh, oh man, I'm already way behind, here we go. <laughs> Chapter 40, verse one. It says, in the five and 20th year of our captivity, in the beginning of the year, in the 10th day of the month, in the 14th year, after that, the city was smitten. In the selfsame day, the hand of the Lord was upon me and brought me thither. In the visions of God brought me into the land of Israel and set me upon a very high mountain, which was um, the frame of a city on the south. And he brought me thither and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of brass with a line of flax in his hand and a measuring reed, and he stood in the gate. And the man said unto me, son of man, behold with thine eyes and hear with thine ears and set thine heart upon all that I shall show thee. 
for to the intent that I might show them unto thee thou art brought hither. Declare all that thou seest to the house of Israel. So in another vision, Ezekiel's gonna see and, and he's, he's, gonna, he's hearing this from a guy that I'm gonna call measurement man. Who's measurement man? Well, check him out. It says, uh, verse three, behold me brought, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of brass. By the way, brass in the Bible is a picture of, a type of, or you know, the, the type is, is of judgment, by the way. It's kind of interesting. But this guy who has the appearance of brass with a line of flax in his hand and a measuring reed. This guy's standing there with a ruler and he's gonna measure out everything. And we're gonna see him measure how big and tall and wide and deep all these structures are of the temple. Measurement man. Now what's interesting about this guy is he also shows up in the book of Revelation. Mr. Measurement Man. Who is this guy? As we get into this in Ezekiel, uh, perhaps we'll talk more about some of the mysterious things about this guy who's got the tape measure. I remember when I was a kid, I, I loved playing with my dad's tape measure. Um, you know, and I, I'd run around the house. Maybe I was a weirdo, but I'd measure everything. I just thought it was interesting to find out the dimensions of things. And uh, that's what this guy does. He goes around measuring everything. And he shows Ezekiel the exact dimensions of this temple and what have you. But notice, I, I wanna show you the, the, there's kind of four things Ezekiel's supposed to do that I find are good things for you and me as well. Check it out in verse four. There's four things. He says, son of man, number one, behold with thine eyes. Um, Ezekiel was supposed to look and see what the Lord was showing him, um, to see it. Um, but then secondly, hear with thine ears, uh, to hear it. And then, and then thirdly, to set thine heart upon all that I shall show thee. Um, it's almost like the Lord showed him and, and sounded off he, the, the, the description of the temple, but he wanted Ezekiel to internalize it in his heart. And this is where you and I have to say, Lord, is this something you want us to internalize? <clears throat> what does this mean to us? Well, I believe this has a lot to do with us in that you and I are gonna be around during this millennial period. The question is, do you wanna be a tourist or do you wanna be a tour guide? Uh, when you get to heaven and, and when, when the millennial kingdom comes and Christ returns to this earth and he's ruling from the, the temple here, do you wanna know what this temple's about or, or not? And I think the Lord wants us to internalize that this is a real deal. And we're gonna be involved in this uh, later on in the future. You know, if, if you've ever built a house, when I was a kid, we built houses. So one of the ways my parents kind of, you know, got ahead was, you know, my dad worked hard all day and then he'd come home and start building. And we built uh, several, three or four houses as a kid growing up. We'd live in a travel trailer and he'd build at night. We'd turn the headlights of the pickup on and work till 11 o'clock at night. And, uh, and then when we'd finish that house, we'd sell it <laughs> and then uh, go build another house. And that's just kind of how we did it. But, um, but I remember, you know, you'd always have the blueprints. And with the blueprints, you could almost see how it was gonna look and shape up. Now you have all this 3D imaging and these programs you can fly through your house now and see how it's gonna look and feel. Uh, in a way, that's what Ezekiel's getting to do. He's getting to sort of do a fly through. Uh, only it's, it's a little difficult for us because it's King James and it's dimensions and things that are kind of hard to picture. So um, I'm gonna try to help us with this, but, but, uh, but it says, you know, take it into your heart. So you got, you know, behold with your eyes, hear with your ears, set in your heart, and then fourthly and finally, declare all that thou seest to the house of Israel. 
Um, that's what we're supposed to do. Hear, see, uh, see, hear, internalize, and then declare it. That's something you and I should all do when we read the word and we hear God's word. A lot of people leave the last one out. They're afraid to talk about the word of God in this day that we live. And to talk about the Bible is not something that uh, people are really brave about, but I think we should be bold and declare what the Lord has shown us and revealed to us and, and the gospel message. We shouldn't be afraid or ashamed of the gospel. Declare it. Um, by the way, um, sometimes I wonder if the Lord's declaring has to do with your distributing. If the, have you ever felt like, man, I just don't get the Bible. I just don't understand. I just don't really, it doesn't mean anything to me like it used to or this or that. Here's the thing that I wanna remind you of. Um, remember Abraham? when God came with the two angels and the, the mysterious man that we know as a Christophany, and they came and, and the Lord asked rhetorically, should I hold this thing back and declare it? Or should I tell Abraham what I'm about to do to Sodom? The Lord asked the rhetorical question. And then he answered his, his own question. He says, I'm going to share it to Abraham because I know that Abraham will, will pass it on to his, his children and his children's children. He will, he'll, he'll hear it and he'll communicate it. In other words, God's revelation, what he's about to do, was based on Abraham's willingness to distribute what he would receive. Um, you know, I heard it said once, God's revelation is not based on accumulation as much as it is on distribution. If you wanna receive from the Lord great understanding of the word, the best thing you can do is distribute what you're receiving and hearing. The best, fastest growth I've ever had in my life I remember when I first started teaching Sunday school. Um, you know, by the time I was 12, I'd been through the Bible with my pastor. And, you know, you're 12 year old, I thought I knew everything. But man, as soon as I started teaching the Bible, I was like, what a dunce I really was. That'll make a dunce out of any of us when you try to teach the, the, the holy word of God that is amazing and powerful. It makes you kind of realize, oh man, I know nothing. But the revelation God gives you or understanding about his word. I think it comes faster and more readily when you're distributing what you're hearing and when you're teaching and sharing, whether it be with your kids, your family, your coworkers, your neighborhood, uh, not being obnoxious, uh, but, but being willing to share the things that the Lord's been showing you. Well, that's what Ezekiel is told. You're gonna see it, you're gonna hear it, you're gonna internalize it in your heart, and then I want you to sh uh, speak it out and share it to the people of Israel. So that's what he's gonna do. And that's why we're reading it today is because Ezekiel you know, comes through. Now, in verse five is where we start the description of Ezekiel's temple. Now, before we read that, let me show you a little bit of a, a, little bit of a map of, of, that we've got here that I wanna kind of give you a, a, an overview of this Ezekiel's temple. Um, the first thing I wanna show you is, is how massive this temple is going to be in the millennial kingdom, because uh, all the measurements are given. But if, if I kind of zoom in on this lower, uh, you know, the black and white image there, uh, you see the American football field right there? That's, that's the American football field in the lower, lower section there. That's how big it is comparatively. So it's a fairly large temple mount area for the Ezekiel's temple, as far as the size goes and what have you. But all that to say, um, the first thing we're gonna look at here is the outer court. Um, or uh, pardon me, the east gate of the outer court. We talked about the east gate of Jerusalem in the second coming of Christ. This will be the east gate in the millennial kingdom, okay? So it's a little different, the east gate. It's gonna be a rebuilt east gate. So let's read about this east gate right here 
uh, in, um, in chapter 40, verse five. It says, behold, a wall on the outside of the house round about and in the man's hand, a measuring reed of six cubits long by the cubit and a hand breadth. So he measured the breadth of the building, uh, one reed and the height, one reed. Then came he unto the gate, which looketh toward the east and went up the stairs thereof and measured uh, the threshold of the gate, which was one reed broad and the other threshold of the gate, which was one reed broad. And every little chamber was one reed long and one reed broad. And between the little chambers were five cubits and the threshold of the gate by the porch of the gate within was one reed. He measured also the porch of the gate within one reed. The measure, uh, then measured he the porch of the gate, eight cubits and the post thereof two cubits and the porch of the gate was inward. And the little chambers of the gate eastward were three on this side and three on that side. And they were uh, of one measure. And the post had one measure on this side and one on that side. And he measured the breadth of the entry of the gate, 10 cubits, and the length of the gate, 13 cubits. And the space also before the little chambers was one cubit on this side, and the space was one cubit on that side, and the little chambers were six cubits on this side and six cubits on that side. There will be a test afterwards. <laughs> Verse 13. And he measured then the gate from the roof of one little chamber to the roof of another, and the breadth was five and 20 cubits, door against door. He made also posts of three score cubits, even unto the post of the court round about the gate. And from the face of the gate, of the entrance unto the face of the porch of the inner gate were 50 cubits. And there were narrow windows with little chambers and to their posts within the gate round about. And likewise to the arches and windows were round about inward and upon each post were palm trees. <laughs> now, now um, some of this you say, Brett, now I know why churches aren't reading this chapter. Uh, it's like, wow, this, this is like a reading like a, a blueprint, exactly. That's what we're doing. Um, when you're building, I remember when we were building this church building, uh, you know, we had blueprints and we had to hammer through the details and it was tedious. Hours and hours and hours of work, uh, just making sure everything was right and everything's gonna fit and planning for the phase two and all the things that we were trying to, you know, it was like a little bit of like a Rubik's cube trying to figure this thing out, but it was worth it going through it. And in the same way, I think we have to kind of look at this blueprint and familiarize ourselves with kind of the, what this millennial temple is gonna be. But one thing is these gates are very different than the biblical gates. The biblical gates uh, of, the, of the temple and what have you had more to do with military defense um, where the armies couldn't just burst into the temple mount. These gates are just big fancy gates and they're not really meant to keep out military arms and what have you. Um, does anybody want to guess why this one is not as concerned about military issues? Jesus. <laughs> uh, don't need a military anymore. Uh, Jesus is there. He is the power. He is in control. So that's one of the things you see different in this. It's not a bunch of walls and turrets and places for soldiers to guard and stand. You don't see that in this temple as much. It, this temple almost looks very exposed 
compared to uh, Herod's temple or Solomon's temple or Zerubbabel's temple. Uh, those had very much defense in mind when you look at the, you know, the way that they took, took those up. But this east gate is very grandiose and very tall um, and you can't see it, but there's little chambers inside there. And we're gonna talk about those in a second when it comes to those inner uh, gates uh, in just a minute. So you've got this. Now, now as we kind of look at this whole picture here, um, the outer court is that you know, square that, um, that is kind of the tan color, not the red color. Um, that's called the, the, the pavement, the lower pavement. But the outer court is that big square area there. Um, and that's described in verses 17 through 19. It says in verse 17, then brought he me into the outward court and lo, there were chambers and a pavement made for the court round about. 30 chambers were upon the pavement and the pavement by the side of the gates over against the length of the gates was the lower pavement. Then he measured the breadth from the forefront of the lower gate into the forefront of the inner court without a hundred cubits eastward and northward. Okay, so you've got this, you know, this, basically this whole, this, this whole square right here is the outer court. But notice it says the 30 chambers. That's what all these little boxes are. Um, the, the, these corners are the uh, sort of the kitchen for the priests. But all these other, there's actually 30 of these little chambers here. Uh, and we'll talk about what those chambers are uh, perhaps a little bit later. Um, but um, they're not as much the living chambers for the priests. We'll talk, that's coming later. But they're preparatory chambers and what have you. So the chambers are not on the outer courtyard. Now, by the way, in the Herod temple and also Solomon's temple, um, the, 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 the temple was considered you know, the outer courtyard all the way in. As soon as you were outside of the outer courtyard, you were no longer on the temple or considered at the temple. This is great um, because do you remember when Jesus came into Jerusalem and he was in what was called the court of the Gentiles? That's sort of the equivalent to the lower pavement. Uh, you weren't in the specific uh, temple of the Lord if you were a Jew in Jerusalem in that time. But Jesus goes into the court of the Gentiles and remember what he saw there? He found changers of money sitting and they were ripping off the people and they were selling things at exorbitant prices so people that came to worship had to spend a lot of money. They were ripping off people and making tons of money. Well, Jesus comes and wipes out the tables and you know, makes a scourge of small cords and says, take these things hence. And then he says something that would have blown the Jews away. And make not my father's house a house of merchandise. Why would that have blown them away? Because in the Jewish mind, the Gentile court was not part of the father's house. Jesus was including the court of the Gentiles with the father's house. Does anybody wanna take a guess why? Well, it's because of what Jesus came to do. He didn't come to die for the sins of just the Jews. Jesus came to save the whole world from the sins of the whole world, the Gentiles included. We would be that Gentile branch grafted into the vine. Remember all that stuff? And Jesus was the one who included us in the Father's house, even though the Jews wouldn't even have let the, the, the Gentile come on to the inner court there. Um, by the way, there was a fence during the Herod's, Herod's the Great's temple, um, and there were placards. They've actually found archeologically some of these placards that were there on the temple fence. And it said, if any Gentile steps over this fence, he has only himself to blame 
for his ensuing death. That's what it said. It's like, welcome to the temple. If you're a Gentile, you're gonna die if you cross this line. Gentiles were not allowed onto the courtyard of the temple. Um, they could only be up as close as the court of the Gentiles. I love how Jesus said, no, make not my father's house a house of merchandise speaking at the court of Gentiles. Anyway, all that to say, the temple speaks of so many things. We could talk about this all night, I suppose. But um, as we kind of uh, zoom in there, we see that, that inner, the outer court, um, and then we, we start to come to the north gate uh, here, which is really the same as the east gate. And uh, let's read through this, verse 20. And the gate of the outward court that looked toward the north, he measured the length thereof and the breadth thereof, and the little chambers thereof were three on this side and three on that side. And the posts thereof were the arches, um, and the arches thereof were after the measure of the first gate. The, the length thereof was 50 cubits, the breadth five and 25 cubits, and their windows and their arches, their palm trees were after the measure of the gate that looks toward the east. And they went up into it by seven steps and arches were uh, uh, before them. And the, the gate of the inner court was over against the gate toward the north and toward the east gate, or toward the east, pardon me. And he measured from gate to gate 100 cubits. Now, if you're really interested, there's more to talk about on all this stuff. Um, uh, even the numbers of things. Uh, one of the things that's interesting in Solomon's temple, the steps were six steps. Uh, but on this temple in the millennial kingdom, there's seven steps. Anybody wanna take a stab at what that's talking about? Well, if you know your, the numbers of the Bible, six is the number of man. Um, you also know it's the number of the mark of the beast, 666. But it's actually the number of man is six. The number of seven in the Bible uh, is, is um, you know, completion and perfection. And I believe this temple is speaking of that time period where it's not as much human, a human priest like Aaron, it's actually um, the perfect priest, Jesus, who completes, he's the perfect high priest. And uh, completion and perfection is what we see here in this millennial kingdom. So there's little nuances that we could probably spend a lot of time talking about, but um, if you're interested, you can, you can dive, do a deep dive into this and, and study these chapters and see the comparisons and the contrast of all these things. Well, that brings us to the south gate um, there toward the southern steps there in, uh, in Jerusalem. It says here in verse 24, after that, he brought me toward the south and behold, a gate toward the south. And he measured the posts thereof and the arches thereof according to these measures. And there were windows in it and in the arches thereof round about like those windows, the length was 50 cubits and the breadth five and 20 cubits and there were seven steps to go up to it. And the arches thereof were before them. And it was, had palm trees, one on this side and the other on that side upon the post thereof. And there was a gate in the inner court toward the south. And he measured from gate to gate toward the south, 100 cubits. So we got these measurements, distances, it's all detailed there. Basically, each gate is the same. East, north, south. There is no west gate but there is a mysterious thing on the west side uh, that we'll talk about here as we get kind of uh, further into this discussion. So the next thing you have is the gates to the inner court. If you'll notice, it looks like we've got duplications. This is like Legos, you know, you just stuck Legos on the, on the board, you know. Um, and these, these inner court gates are seemingly pretty close to the same 
as the out, outer gates there. So a person coming in, they'd go through the main gates and then they'd walk you know, several hundred feet back to the next gate that would bring you to the, the altar or what have you. Um, by the way, I didn't mention this, a cubit, you guys know how long a cubit is, right? Uh, we don't know exactly, but it's somewhere around 18 inches uh, is what they believe. And they believe that they generally measured a cubit from the tip of a person's finger to their elbow. Um, that, that was a cubit. So they had hand breadths and they had a cubit of measurement um, that they would use to, to do this. But you say, well, how would they know? Maybe there was, you know, Andre the Giant measuring a cubit and then you had, you know, Danny DeVito uh, measuring a cubit. Like, how do you know what's a real cubit? Well, that's why they would have the reed. They would have a standard measurement of a reed that would be marked and they'd use that reed to make sure all their measurements were exact. Uh, and, and that's what, what measurement man is all about here. Well, uh, so you got the, 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 the gates to the inner courts starting in verse 28. And he brought me to the inner court by the south gate and he measured the south gate according to these measures and the little chambers thereof and the posts thereof and the arches thereof according to these measures. And there were windows in it, uh, the arches thereof round about it and uh, it was 50 cubits long and five and 20 cubits broad. And the arches round about were five and 20 cubits long and five cubits broad. And the arches thereof were toward the outer court and palm trees were upon the posts uh, thereof. And the going up to it had eight steps. Hmm, did you notice the change of numbers? Anybody know what the number eight is in the Bible? Hey. Yes, new beginnings. Six is the number of man. Seven is the number of completion or perfection. Eight in the Bible is new beginnings. Interesting that the closer you get to the altar, the closer you have to new beginnings. There's some interesting numbers there that are kind of fascinating why they put these various steps in the way that they did. Um, so the new beginnings that steps up to the, um, the, the throne here. And by the way, six steps also on Solomon's temple on this part. So it went from seven to eight, where it was six and six. Uh, Solomon's kind of an interesting guy. Um, the Bible tells us that Solomon's salary wages every year as uh, king was 666 shekels, uh, which is kind of interesting, but that's a whole other interesting number that we could talk about. Well, verse 32, and he brought me into the inner court toward the east and he measured the gate according to these measures. And the little chambers thereof and the posts thereof and the arches thereof were according to these measures. And there were windows therein and arches thereof round about. It was 50 cubits long and five and 20 cubits broad. The arches thereof were toward the outward court and the palm trees were upon the posts thereof on this side and on that side. And the going up to it had eight steps. And he brought me to the north gate and measured it according to these measures. The little chambers thereof, the posts thereof, uh, and the arches thereof, and the windows to it round about, and the length um, was uh, 50 cubits, and the breadth five and 20 cubits, and the posts thereof were toward the utter court, and the palm trees were upon the posts thereof on this side, on that side, and the going up to it had eight steps. Okay, so basically uh, we've kind of rubber stamped these big fancy gates. Um, the thing that you might be thinking about though is if you're a pilgrim coming to the Jerusalem to make a sacrifice on the altar, what would you do? You'd have to go through one of the outer gates, but then you come into the inner gate there toward the altar. 
And some believe that's where the sacrifice would be prepared by the priest and by the person bringing the sacrifice. Uh, so there's like a shaded area with little inner chambers where they could store some of their materials that they need uh, and what have you. Now, some of you might be saying, Brett, why are they gonna have sacrificial altar uh, there in the millennial kingdom? Um, we'll, we'll answer that hopefully here in a bit. Uh, that's a good question, glad you asked. Uh, <laughs> now, we, we come to uh, verse 38, which speaks of the rooms that were prepared for making sacrifice. Now, there's a little bit of debate on where these rooms are. Some people say the little rooms are in the gates themselves, the inner gates there. Others say, no, the rooms are uh, near one of those buildings near the temple. Um, you'll see the stair step building next to the temple. That's not where this would be. But some of the other rooms might be where these chambers are of preparation that we read about uh, here in verses 38 through 43, the rooms for preparing sacrifice. Verse 38, and the chambers and the entries thereof by the post of the gates where they washed the burnt offering. And in the porch of the gate were two tables on this side and two tables on that side to slay thereon the burnt offering and the sin offering and the trespass offering. Um, there's some other offerings missing here you might notice for you Bible students. Uh, the peace offering, you, you, you say, Brad, I, I don't understand why there's gonna be any offering here. Uh, why are they gonna have to do this during the millennial kingdom? Well, as it turns out, um, there's a couple reasons I believe this, this could be happening uh, that you might wanna talk about. Uh, let's keep reading and, and I'll go into it in here in a second. So uh, verse 40, and on the side without, as go one goeth up to the entry of the north gate, where there were two tables, um, um, and on the other side, which was at the porch of the gate, were two tables. Four tables were on this side and four tables on that side. Uh, and by the side of the gate, lots of slaying tables for the sacrifice. Eight tables whereupon they slew their sacrifices. And the four tables were of hewn stone for the burnt offering of a cubit and a half long and a cubit and a half broad and one cubit high. Whereupon they also laid the instruments wherein they slew the burnt offering and the sacrifice. And within were hooks and hand broad, fastened round about, and upon the tables was the flesh of the offering. So um, interesting, um, will, there, will there be offering sacrifices during the millennial kingdom? Yes. By the way, will they be making sacrifice offerings in the tribulation temple? The answer is yes. Daniel 9 says they're gonna do that as well. You might say, well, Brad, I don't get it. If Jesus is gonna be there, why would they even need sacrifice? Um, and people, uh, people debate this. And I wouldn't die on this battlefield, but let me give you a few possibilities. Um, question, why did they sacrifice animals uh, in the Old Testament? Was it for the remission of sin? Covering. The Old Testament word for atonement is covering, which is a funny word because the Old Testament word for atonement means to cover up. Um, the New Testament word for atonement means to do away with. And I love that. Um, so so here's, let me, let me ask the question that'll maybe give you a hint because it's hard. You're like, uh, sacrifices of the Old Testament, did they take away sins? And some of you are a little nervous to answer that it because it's, it's a sketchy question. But let me ask you this, did the blood of bulls, rams, and goats actually fix this problem of sin? 
No. You know that because the book of Hebrews says, those bulls, rams, and goats, that didn't take away sin. There was only one. Jesus died, the Lamb of God, that took away the sins of the world. There was only one Lamb whose blood did take away the sacrifice or take away the sins of humanity. Well, then why did all those animals die? Well, as it turns out, the Lord wanted them to use that to look forward to. Those sacrifices of the Old Testament were pointing forward in history to where Jesus would ultimately make atonement for the sins of the whole world. Um, It's almost like the Lord wanted them to look forward and say, man, there has to be bloodshed. Um, This is something that I fear that Portlanders, we don't know about. We go to a restaurant and have a steak and we, we, we enjoy red meat, which I do. Um, I love it, but I grew up on a farm. Like I was there when the butcher came and had that little, you know, 22 caliber, I think it was a 22 Magnum and put in the right place, the cow with just a little round would just drop. Little, you know, you know we, had, we had three beef cows, Huey, Dewey and Louie, that's what we named them. And uh, I watched as our butcher came out and, you know, popped them and, you know, filleted them out and got the steaks and, uh, we ate hamburgers that night. Like, uh, seriously. A lot of you Portlander people get queasy me just talking about that. But you see, for the remission of sin, there has to be blood. Without the shedding of blood, there can be what? No remission of sin. And so the people of Israel, they needed to know the severity of their sins. And to see Fluffy, who was once frolicking out in the flowers in the field, is gonna be dead now. Like, can you imagine bringing your little lamb to the Temple Mount um, and and they, the, the, the priest would then, you know, attach the lamb to the altar horn. And then the person would put their, you know, they, they give the, the lamb to the priest. The priest then would put the, the man's hand on the head of the, um, uh, of, the, of the sacrifice. And they would say, we're giving this to the Lord. And then they would slit the lamb's throat right there. And they'd watch, you know, as the lamb was taken off. And there was a, a reality somehow to the sin that they were committing, knowing that blood had to be shed. Um, So that's what they did in the Old Testament to look forward to when Jesus came. Could it be that the millennial kingdom will be that which looks backward to what Jesus did? By the way, um, when Jesus died on the cross, is there anything the Lord uses today for us to look backward to the cross, symbolically? Communion. We, in the New Testament, we don't do lambs, bulls, rams, and goats. We, we go to the table of communion with the bread and the cup, and that's looking backward to the, what Jesus did on the cross for the church. But after the church is raptured and taken up, then the millennial kingdom will happen, and there will be people on this earth who will be making sacrifice for their sins. Now, you say, Brett, wait a minute. I thought we were gonna have our new bodies. I didn't say we're gonna be making sacrifice. See, here's the thing. When we're raptured, we're gonna be with the Lord forevermore from that point on, with the Lord. Wherever the Lord is, that's where we get to be. Whether he's up or down or here or there, we're gonna be with the Lord. That's gonna be great. But we're gonna be given our new bodies. But who are these people that are gonna be living during this time that'll, that'll be caring as much about this temple? It's gonna be the people that live through the tribulation. Do you realize there's gonna be real people kind of in our condition that will live through the tribulation? Very small group of people, but they'll, they'll uh, be reproducing and the, the, you know, the, the population will grow and they'll be using this temple. Where are we gonna be? 
boy, there's a lot we can talk about. And, and Ezekiel's gonna talk about some of this stuff. The Jews are gonna be involved with serving in, in the temple, but we're not gonna be as much using this temple as uh, you know, the church of Jesus Christ given our glorified bodies. Um, we'll talk more about this as Ezekiel gets into it. Uh, there's, we're gonna talk about the Feast of Tabernacles and all kinds of things that are gonna be part of this millennial kingdom. That's all coming. But um, the idea is um, to look forward to, um, or pardon me, to look backward to the cross of Jesus. Um, as, they, as they looked ahead in the Old Testament, they'll look backward in remembrance. Um, and these tribulation survivors in their human you know, bodies uh, will still be uh, a part of this sacrificial system of the temple during that time. Are you guys still with me on this? Good, okay, good. Now, um, it, uh, it brings us then to the, the next part, the rooms for the priests. And there's several places that that really is, both on the right side and the left side of the temple. The stair-step building you see on the left side there, uh, we'll talk about uh, in chapter uh, 42, uh, uh, more detailed, but I, some of it's mentioned here, uh, these rooms for the priests in verse 44. It says, and without the inner gate were the chambers of the singers uh, in the inner court, which was at the side of the north gate and their prospect was toward the south, one having, uh, pardon me, one at the side of the east gate having the prospect toward the north. And he said unto me, this chamber whose prospect is toward the south is for the priests, the keepers of the charge of the house. And the chamber whose prospect is toward the north is for the priests, uh, the keepers of the charge of the altar. These are the sons of Zadok among the sons of Levi, which uh, come near to the Lord to minister unto him. So he measured the court a hundred cubits long and a hundred cubits broad, four square, and the altar that was before the house. So you got the chambers of the, of the priests there numbered. Uh, we'll, we'll talk more about that in a bit. Verse 48, and he brought me now, uh, this is the temple itself, the temple building. And he brought me to the porch of the house and measured each post of the porch, five cubits on this side, five cubits on that side. And the breadth of the gate was three cubits on this side and three cubits on that side. And the length of the porch was 20 cubits and the breadth 11 cubits, and he brought me by the steps whereby they went up to it. And there were pillars by the posts, one on this side and one on that side. Anybody wanna take a guess what the names of these pillars are? This is only a guess, but in the Old Testament, they named these pillars. Of course, you guys remember Joachim and Boaz. Joachim, uh, he will, um, uh, uh, he will, what's the, what's the word? Anybody remember? Jaquin. Huh? Established, thank you. I couldn't remember. <laughs> it's good to have somebody in here who knows what they're talking about. That's good. <laughs> he will establish. And, um, and then Boaz, in him is strength. Uh, that's the second pillar listed here. And these two pillars in verse 49 might just be Jaquin and Boaz. Uh, he will establish, or he who establishes, and, uh, and in him is strength. Interesting that pillars are named, but those were big deals in the Old Testament. It makes you wonder if they'll be named that in the millennial kingdom. Now, uh, chapter 41, uh, you know, we've been through the courts. Now we go inside. Uh, and and some, some of you might be saying, Brett, this is tough, man. Last week you were talking about Ezekiel 38, 39. That's exciting stuff. Uh, now we're talking about measurements, measurement man. 
uh, and this is not as exciting. But um, can I remind you though, uh, you know, I was just thinking about this as I was reading scripture. Um, you know, uh, it's, it's interesting because um, Paul told young Timothy, he said this, until I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation and to doctrine and neglect not the gift that is in there. One of the things I think churches neglect is the reading of scripture. In the, in the um, Jewish, you know, synagogues, they would often just read large chunks of scripture and let the scriptures stand for themselves. And that's part of what we're doing tonight. You know, um, we, uh, we don't have all the answers of all the, what all this means to you and me, but we do know that this temple that we're looking at here, we do know that this is gonna be something the Lord cares about. And he gives all this information to us for some reason. And I, I don't even claim to know all the reasons why we're given such detail, um, but we do know it's gonna happen. But even the fact that we're just reading through this, and I'm gonna kind of read through chapter 42 because, or 41 because um, it's, it's work. But sometimes people say, well, Brett, I read through the Bible in my personal devotion and it just goes through me like a sieve. Uh, I don't get anything out of it. Um, but remember the water of the word, this is, the word of God is compared to water. And if you run water through a sieve, what do you have? A clean sieve even though it goes right through you. So you might say, Brett, I don't get chapter 41 and what all this stuff about the temple and what it has to do with me and I don't get the nuances and all that stuff. Well, join the club. Um, I've, not, I've not met a lot of people who can make amazing stuff out of this and say, wow. And if you're trying to make stuff up, you're probably off course anyway. So you read this and understand this is the Lord's word. It's holy and it's all inspired. So it does us well to read it. Amen? Amen. Let's take a look. Chapter 41. And afterward, he brought me to the temple and measured the post, six cubits broad on one side, six cubits broad on the other side, which was the breadth of the tabernacle. And the breadth of the door was 10 cubits. And the sides of the door were five cubits on one side and five cubits on the other side. And he measured the length thereof, 40 cubits, and the breadth, 20 cubits. Then went he inward and measured the post of the door, two cubits, and the door, six cubits, and the breadth of the door, seven cubits. So he measured the length thereof, 20 cubits, and the breadth 20 cubits before the temple, and said unto me, this is the most holy place. And he measured the wall of the house, six cubits, and the breadth of every side chamber, four cubits, round about the house on every side. And the side chambers were three, one over another, and um, 30 in order. And they entered into the wall, which was of the house of the four side chambers round about that they might have hold, but they had not hold in the wall of the house. And there was a, an enlarging and a winding about still upward to the side chambers for the winding about the house went still upward round about the house. Thereof the breadth of the house was still upward and so increased from the lowest chamber to the highest by the midst. I saw also the height of the house round about. The foundations of the side chambers were a full reed of six great cubits. The thickness of the wall, which was for the side chamber without, was five cubits. And that which was left was the place of the side chambers that were within. And between the chambers was the, wide, uh, the wideness of 20 cubits round about the house on every side. And the doors were, uh, pardon me, the doors of the side chambers were toward the place that was left, 
one door toward the north, another door toward the south, and the breadth of the, of the place that was left was five cubits round about. Now, the building that was before the separate place, um, uh, at the end of the, the west was 70 cubits broad, the wall of the building was five cubits thick round about, and the length thereof was 90 cubits. So he measured the house 100 cubits long and the separate place and the building with the walls thereof 100 cubits long, also the breadth of the face of the house and of the separate place toward the east, 100 cubits. Now, this is a lot, and I know you're kind of like, oh boy, this is tough. But here's the thing, uh, the, 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 the temple itself, uh, we'll see more about that as we get into this more into Ezekiel. But one of the things that I find mysterious is this verse 12, a separate place, as it's called, the building, at the end toward the west. And that, that building that you see on the west side, remember the, we're looking, you know, um, uh, sort of, you know, north, kind of north, it, we're actually looking uh, uh, northwest, uh, sort of. But, um, but that building is not in any of the other temples. Uh, there's a big building, it's like a big gymnasium or something over there. What is that? And the answer, we have no idea. The Lord has this big building there and we don't know what it's gonna be used for, at least I don't. And uh, none of the scholars that I've read know what that building's gonna be. But, but it'll be interesting when you get to heaven and the millennial kingdom kicks into gear, uh, that'll be something you can figure out. What is that building for? Somebody gonna be playing hoops there? Uh, is it gonna be a conference center? Is it gonna be a special place uh, where we, uh, who knows? Uh, but it is interesting. It's a separate place as it's called in verse 12. Um, kind of mysterious. The other parts, we kind of know what the purpose is and what they're doing. Of course, the holy of holies and all that, we get that. Verse 15, and he measured, measurement man, he measured the length of the building over against the separate place which was behind it uh, and the galleries, uh, galleries uh, thereon, the, uh, uh, the one side and on the other side, a hundred cubits with the inner temple and the porches of the court. The doorposts and the narrow windows and the galleries round about on their three stories over against the door sealed with wood round about and from the ground up to the windows and the windows were covered. So Joanna Gaines would love this. Got shiplap uh, wood on the walls there going up the walls. <laughs> Verse 17, to that above the door, even unto the inner house and without and by all the wall round about uh, within and without by measure. And it was made with cherubims and palm trees so that a palm tree was between, between a cherub and a cherub. And every cherub had two faces. So that the face of a man was on the one toward the palm tree on the one side and the face of a young lion toward the palm tree on the other side. And it was made through all the house round about. Um, interesting, these cherubs with two faces all around the house. And there's speculation, what is this? We know that cherubs can be angels, but this is interesting that it only has a face of a man and a face of a lion. Some say because of this, it's maybe a reference to Jesus himself, both in his humanity, but also in his uh, royalty or, or deity. The face of the lion, Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, but he was also 100% man, 100% God, 100% man. 
the mystery of the Trinity. But some argue that that's what these cherubs all around the, the temple, are, that, that they're, they're pointing to Jesus, which by the way, all of this stuff kind of points to Jesus, uh, especially when you look at the, you know, Solomon's temple or the tabernacle or any of these temples, it all points to Jesus in some, one way or another. So uh, verse 20, from the ground and to the, above the door were cherubims and palm trees made on the wall of the temple. And the posts of the temple were squared and the face of the sanctuary, the appearance of the one as the appearance of the other. Um, verse 22, now we have the uh, altar of incense mentioned here in verse 22. The altar of wood was three cubits high and the length thereof two cubits and the corners thereof and the, um, the length thereof and the walls thereof were of wood. And he said unto me, this is the table that is before the Lord. And the table that the sanctuary, uh, and the sanctuary had two doors and the doors had two leaves apiece, two turning leaves, two leaves for the one door and two leaves for the other door. And there were made on them, uh, on the doors of the temple, cherubims and palm trees, like as it were made upon the walls. And there were thick planks upon the face of the porch without. And there were narrow windows and palm trees on the one side and on the other side, on the sides of the porch and upon the side chambers of the house, thick planks. Now, I love this because uh, I, I've always loved palm trees, even when I was a kid. I remember when I saw palm trees, I was almost at grandma and grandpa's house. Because uh, in Oregon, we didn't have very many palm trees, if any. Uh, but uh, palm trees re reminded me of it as a kid, man, we're gonna be at the beach, we're gonna be at Disneyland, we're gonna be uh, having a great time. Wherever there was palm trees, you know, I still feel good about that. The Bible says the righteous will flourish like the palm tree. And it's interesting that the, the millennial temple will have palm trees everywhere which uh, I think speaking of his righteousness, uh, even as the scriptures declare it. Now, one thing, there's several things that you'll find mysteriously lacking or absent from this description uh, of the temple itself. And I'm just gonna give you a few things and we'll call it a night. Uh, the first thing, number one that's missing is the veil of the temple. There's no mention of a veil or a separation where the holy of holies are. Now, does anybody wanna guess why? Jesus, it's always the right answer. Uh, remember there, uh, you know, um, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 and 20, talk about how we enter into the holiest by a new and living way. When Jesus died on the cross, remember what happened? The veil of the temple was ripped from top to bottom there in the temple. Uh, and it really was a symbol of the access that we have to God through Jesus. And that's why I believe the millennial temple will have no veil, it's not mentioned here. There's also no table of showbread. Uh, bread, of course, speaks of Jesus. Jesus will be there in the temple. Jesus um, said, I am the bread of life. Um, so Jesus, the bread of life, will be there in the millennial kingdom. No need for that. Um, number three, there's no golden candlestick. The golden candlestick spoke of Jesus, who said, I am the light of the world. And then he said, like the branches of the candlestick, you are the lights of the world. There's no need for the candlestick because the light, Jesus himself, is there. Uh, interesting uh, that that's absent from this description. Um, uh, there's also no Ark of the Covenant. Um, by the way, I, I, I believe that there's a lot of people, and for you Indiana Jones types, 
um, that think, oh, I think I know where the Ark of the Covenant is. And you'll hear people say, you know, whether it's the Egyptian Coptics saying we have the Ark of the Covenant hidden or the Jews, some of the Jewish uh, Hasidics say they have the Ark of the Covenant buried deep in the Jerusalem somewhere. Uh, I don't believe them. And the reason why is because, you know, you might jot this one down in your Bible, but Jeremiah 316 talks about how the Ark will be remembered no more and it will be forgotten. Um, I don't think it's gonna be found. Um, but, uh, but all that to say, um, we don't need the Ark of the Covenant because the glory of God and the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant all is perfectly fulfilled in Jesus. So we don't need the Ark, we have Jesus also. Um, another thing you might note that's not here, if, you're, if you were with us when we were tediously reading you know, um, the temple dimensions and all that stuff, when Solomon built the temple, or even the tabernacle descriptions, one of the things we read a lot about was gold and silver. Have we heard anything about gold or silver yet? None. Now the Jews might be saying, oh, this is nothing like the old temple of Solomon's time, but this is gonna be way more glorious because gold is, speaks of deity. Silver speaks of redemption. And Jesus is gonna be that perfect uh, fulfillment of deity in the temple. There's no need for flashy gold because Jesus is, is deity. He's gonna be there. And the, the redeemer of all is gonna be the one uh, in charge and uh, the high priest serving from the temple and also prophet, priest, and king. Moving in all those uh, roles, that's what Jesus will do in Ezekiel's millennial temple. So uh, we'll pick up next week on more of the exciting chamber inner courts, <laughs> measurements uh, and stuff like that. But there actually are some pretty cool prophecies tucked away coming up as well in these last several chapters. Well, Lord, we are thankful so much um, that we can look forward to um, the perfect fulfillment of your word. Lord, um, this millennial kingdom is gonna be something we, it's almost makes our brains short circuit to try to think of what the millennial kingdom is gonna be like. But this temple, Lord, we know this is something that Ezekiel saw and you have plans and a purpose for it. But I pray, Lord, that until that happens, that, that our bodies would be a temple where you're welcome, where you come and serve and minister to our lives, Lord, because you are the, our great high priest. Lord, and we thank you that we can have you filling our lives. And Lord, we don't need gold or silver or the flashy things, Lord, because we have you in our hearts and in our lives, Lord. I pray that you would shine through us, that your church would be on fire in these days we're living. I pray that we wouldn't be shy or step away from our responsibility to know your word, but I pray that you'd use these times on these Wednesday nights that you might build up our faith and give us understanding of your truth. So bless these people both here and online that are watching. Lord, reward them for the work they've put into these chapters. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.